0: And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy. The book of 2 Timothy and chapter number 2. The book of Second Timothy in chapter number 2. Of course, we've been taking our time and going through this series of how we got our English Bible. And it's been our attempt to try to take this in bite-sized pieces as we possibly could. As we took time to define our terms. That we began to describe things about manuscripts and unseals. That we took time to describe where the Bible came from. And we took a Time to talk about the promises of preservation. As we went through, we talked about the two lines of text, the preserved text of the um, Antiochian text. And remember, God promised to preserve His Word. And then we showed the corrupted text that came from Alexandria that has its source from origin and traced both of these lineages as they traveled to England. We saw that over time, that God had won out, and for the English-speaking people, they had disregarded the corrupted text to bring us our (laughs) authorized Bible, which was translated from the correct text. Now, last week, we began to show a thing called textual criticism, where people started to look and desire to find other texts that would correct the old manuscripts, the Antiochian manuscripts, the majority text, the textus receptus those are all synonyms, for the idea that they wanted to find something new. They wanted to find something that would correct the Bible. And it was something new, something flashy, something discovered. And we were brought to a man by the name of Tischendorf, who discovered one of those texts. So previously we had talked about the Alexandrian text. Then we brought up two of the three major manuscripts that are corrupted, that come from Alexandria, that Contradict each other, much less the majority text. And remember, we have 50,000 texts that agree together, and we have three major texts that don't even agree with each other that disagree with the three. And when it came time for the translators to pick which ones do we choose, they seem to gravitate towards the minority text, the Alexandrian text. Two of them that we've already discussed, the Alexandrius and the uh, Sinaiacus. Today we're going to be introduced to a different text in passing of the Vaticanus, which is going to bring us to two men who were responsible for giving us all of the modern English versions because of their influence and their work. But before we dive in deep, let's start with the Bible and turn with me, if you wouldn't mind, to the book of 2nd Timothy chapter number three. The book of 2nd Timothy chapter number three, and notice with me in verse number one. Second Timothy chapter three, starting at verse one. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, led away with diverse lust, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jamborees withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith excuse me, verse 9, but they shall proceed no further for their folly shall be manifest unto all men as theirs also was. Notice and continue with me if you don't mind uh, in verse number 13. It says, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in. Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all. Good works. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in 2 Timothy chapter number 3? 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 13. Notice the whole phrase: but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And with the Lord's help, we're going to cover tonight two men who fit this description of Westcott and Hort. Westcott and Hort. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you, help us to have understanding, help us to be accurate, help us to be able to clearly present what is true that we may understand what is going on in this spiritual warfare dealing with your word and that we would be understanding that there is a spiritual war going on and there are sides and that no one <coughs> is a spectator that everyone has a part to play and that help us to choose the lord's side with Knowledge, and not just knowledge, but understanding and the promises of your word. Give us help even now, beyond myself. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, and you get your work accomplished tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in the last days, there will be evil men... And seducers, the Bible speaks about that the idea of evil men, the word evil carries the idea with the intention of doing harm. Seducers carry the idea of people who are trying to entice people from the truth. The Bible says that they will deceive or they will deceive and be deceived. Now think about that today, there are people who are deceiving others. And they're not meaning to, they're well-meaning. But because they have been taught by someone who was deceived, they teach that same deception. And those people who taught them were taught by other people who were deceived and being deceived. And so it goes on that there are good, well-meaning people who teach other things that endorse other Bibles. And the problem is, is that they don't realize that they had been deceived. And that's a big deal. The Bible says that people are, the Bible says in other passages that Satan would try to deceive the very elect. You know, Satan wants to deceive every Christian, every born again Christian. He wants to deceive them, he wants to sell them a lie. He's a great imitator, and he tries to imitate God's work and sell people an imitation. And that people are caught in this. And the Bible gives us warning. Now the answer to these perilous times are found in verses 14 and 15. What does it say? But continue thou in the things that thou has learned. And has been assured of. Knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And from a child thou has known the holy scriptures. What is the, the answer to perilous times? The word of God. Notice it's the same chapter and it's the same context. What do we do about deceivers? What do we do about seducers? Go to the word of God. The only antidote to evil men is to continue in the word of God. The only protection from seducers is continue in the word of God. The only way to keep from being swept up in a movement is to be continue in the word of God. Now with this, let's try to understand, I always believe that you should study people within the context of their times. Sometimes someone will ask, why did Westcott and Hort get away with this? Well, it's part of the context of what's going on. Let's go back to the 1800s and let's kind of understand what is going on in the world and why is it that they were able to do what they were able to do. Well, first of all, we understand that during the 1800s, the attacks on God's word were launched from several fronts. And you have to understand this, that all the way up to the 1800s, no one really doubted God's word was true. I meant you had some fringe groups, but for the most part, everyone believed God's word was true. But in the 1800s, there became a dynamic shift, and there were different attacks upon God's word that were launched from three specific areas, all of them occurring in the 1800s. First of all, we have The Origin of Species, written by Charles Darwin, that was published in 1859. And what this did, the theory of evolution, is that it caused people to doubt God's word. Because the origin of species, it began to say that God's word isn't true, that God didn't create as he did, that we, uh, a whole different discussion. You had Charles Lyell who wrote something before talking about that maybe the world isn't as old as everyone thought it was. Charles Darwin went and followed back up and tried to produce a quote-unquote scientific idea, even though my degrees are more legitimate than his degrees were, and that's not anything. He, went, he got a Bible college degree, and they hail him as a great scientist. That's a different discussion, but he produced his work in uh, 1859, sold like hotcakes, and we'll understand that a little bit differently. Uh, Why? In just a little bit. But this is a big deal. People are reading this and they're getting sucked in and it's causing them to doubt God's word. At the same time, the second attack was textual criticism. Textual criticism had been growing more popular with people who were searching for manuscripts that would be different than the majority text of the Bible. It became a big deal. Oh, I found something that was different. This must be better because it's different than the rest of the Bible. This is what the Bible really said and the idea of hidden books and lost books and and things that were inaccurate began to be the uh, the things people were searching for. But to be honest, and as we covered before, most of the texts that they found agreed with our majority text of the Bible. There was only three major texts that disagreed. However, those three were promoted so much, that's what people were starting to believe and buy into, that the oldest was best and therefore they're the most reliable. So textual criticism caused people to question God's word. Then the third attack was launched in the 1800s that was higher criticism. Higher criticism crept into the cemeteries, I mean seminaries, as the scholars examined the bible text and pulled them apart. Here's a A quote from encyclopedia.com dealing with the definition of higher criticism. Scholars in academic circles, however, employed the newer critical methods while trying to free biblical studies From the heavy hand of theological conviction. Meaning they wanted to remove the Bible from the idea of theology and religion. They wanted to study it and see it as a historical book. By the late 19th century, increasing numbers of English-speaking scholars viewed the newer critical methods as promising, responsible, and liberating. Liberating from what? Liberating from our belief in God. We're separating our belief in God and separating them out to more of a literary book. They would explain away miracles in the Bible and deny fulfilled prophecies. Higher criticism caused people to deny. God's word. So let's put this together in the context. The problem was the people turned their Bibles over to the scholars. So instead of trusting their pastor, instead of pastors trusting the Bible, they turned them over to the scholars and the scholars took apart their Bibles and then returned them back to them full of holes and caused them to doubt, question, and the deny that the Bible was indeed god 's word, this is the context of the times of the eighteen hundreds and in here we 're going to see that there this is just going to be the start of the context with this, there is something that in England was called the Oxford movement. Now remember we had studied all of how the Bible was given in English. Over the period of time that you had Wycliffe and you had Tyndale and you had Coverdale. And all of them were determined to try to give the Bible God's word into the hands of the people. And then finally we got the authorized version which gave the Bible to the English speaking people from the correct text. Well the Oxford movement began in the 1800s and it's going to try to reverse that flow of traffic. And it all begins with a man by the name of Cardinal Wiseman. The word cardinal should already frighten you, that the idea of trying to get take away the Bible from the hands of the people, at least the biblical the true Bible, is gonna start in the hands of a cardinal. He was the editor of the Vatican Manuscript. This is going to be the third of the minority texts, the Alexandria text. We have Alexandrius, we had Sinaiacus, and now we have the Vatican Manuscript. And the Vatican, of course, is going to be key name for Catholic. And so he's the editor of the Vatican Manuscript. And he had a great influence on some men in England by the name of John Newman and Edward Pusey. Let's kind of cover these two men. Let's hit John Newman. John Newman took it upon himself to move the schools in England, both the secular schools and the ministerial schools, away from the fundamental truth back under the influence of the Roman Catholic Church. So his whole purpose in life was to convince everyone to go back to Rome. And so this is what he tried to do. His partner in crime was Edward Pussy. Now, whereas Newman had worked hard to get the schools, like the cemeteries and the seminaries in Oxford and Cambridge and all of them, Edward Pussy is going to be working on the churches themselves. So he is trying to seek influence And influence the ministers of the church away from fundamental Bible doctrine back to the Roman Catholic Church. This is what they're going to work together to do. These two men were two of the five leaders of what was known as the Oxford Movement. This movement lasted from 1833 to 1845. They printed and distributed tracts and pamphlets throughout England seeking influence with the educational system and the religious system of the nation and to move them away from the Church of England back under the wing of the Pope and the Vatican. When the movement ran its course, Newman surrendered his sought offices as priest in the Church of England, and he joined the Roman Catholic Church. Now, he was Roman Catholic the whole time, just posing as Church of England, so that way he could bring the Church of England back to Rome. And then he quit. said, oh, I'm no longer Church of England. He joined Rome. Hey, I was Catholic the whole time. It was me all the time. For his work and labor in churning the churches, English churches, and English universities away from Bible truth and back to Roman Catholicism, the Pope made him a cardinal. Let me reward you. You're now a cardinal. Thank you for all your work for bringing everyone back to Rome. Appreciate it. That was nice of him. John Henry Newman in the early 1840s wrote a series of pamphlets entitled "Tracts." for the times, for which the name of the Romanizing movement was derived. So it had two names. It was called the Tract movement, as well as the Oxford movement. Both of those are the same movements. Now these are going to have a great influence on a lot of people. He argued, Newman, argued that the Church of England should adopt Roman Catholic liturgical practices, such as burning incense, using candles and brightly colored vestments, reading the service of, of with the back to the congregation, just like the Roman Catholic Church. And those are just some of the things, but basically he's trying to bring the Church of England and its service and formation like the Roman Church. So when they join the Roman Church, it's just the same. He wants to make it so there's no difference between the two. The Tractarian movement had a tremendous influence on the Church of England and on English culture in general. Now, here are some frightening statistics. In 1830, when Newman began his work, there were 434 Roman Catholic priests in England. By the time he was done in 1860, there were 1,242 Roman Catholic priests in England. In 1830, there were 17 covenants that were training nuns. By the time he was done in 1860, there was 162 covenants in England training nuns. In 1844, there were 2,000 plus churches that were trending towards Romanism or Roman Catholicism. By 1898, there were over 7,000. When he finished his course, of the 17,000 churches in England, only 2,500 were still fundamental and conservative in their Christian doctrine, meaning that they were close enough that we could relate to them. That's it. All the other churches were tending towards Rome or were tending towards some sort of modernism. That is a huge influence. A great influence in a small amount of time. By the way, just as a minor note, how did they do it? Passing out tracts. Made a great influence on an entire nation. Now, by voice and pen, the teaching of Newman changed the minds of many, their attitude towards the Bible. In 1845, he wrote from Rome to Cardinal Wiseman, we had mentioned him earlier in Ireland, proposing a new translation sanctioned by the Pope. I don't want any Bible sanctioned by the Pope, but he said, let's get a new translation. And this translation not only would be good for the English people, the Pope is going to put a stamp of approval on it. Let's do that. And it's going to be based off the Latin Vulgate to be published and distributed inside of England. His methods of interpreting the scripture was origins. Origins method of allegorizing, meaning that he didn't believe in literal truth. He believed there were stories. In fact, it was said of Newman that he contended that God never intended the Bible to teach doctrine. Well, doesn't that go in the face of what we just read in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16? That all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for Doctrine. Well, the Bible teaches doctrine and you can't separate it. But when you get to the place where you say the Bible doesn't teach doctrine and that we don't interpret it literally, we could just make it say whatever it says, then what is happening is that you're taking away the Bible and God's word. And you might as well twist it to whatever you want. Which brings us to West and Hort. All of this was context, bringing it to these two men so we can understand where they came from and how, how it came to be. In the United States, Trench and Hodge, which is a different discussion altogether, led the movement away from the word of God. In England, the responsibility was under Westcott and Hort. Westcott and Hort were disciples of Newman. That's why we brought him up. So they had learned under Newman, who by the way was a Roman Catholic and in disguise, and they learned from Newman and wanted to be just like his teachings. They were products of the Oxford Movement. They ended up heading the uh, they ended up heading up the revision committee to replace the King James Bible with a translation based off of the Vatican manuscript, which had been edited by Cardinal Wiseman. These men, Westcott and Hort, produced a Bible that was true to the Roman Catholic religion and offered that Bible to the people of England in the place of the authorized King James Version. Which is, by the way, called the Revised Standard Version. This is the version that they produced in order to replace the Bible with the corrections they have. And it was very much aligned with Roman Catholic theology. These two men were more anti-biblical than the men that had come before them, such as Tischendorf, which we had covered last week. Without Westcott and Hort, none of the modern English versions would exist. All of the English versions, except for the authorized version, have their, have their ancestry, have their blueprint, have their uh, influence from Westcott and and hort so we can't underemphasize them these two men are responsible for now the 800 different english versions that we have that could all be stemmed from them so let's cover these men and see what they believe. now what I've done is that you could explore these men quite a different ways. They have wrote commentaries on the Bible and I've included a couple of them, but that's a lot of commentary to go through where they'll specifically cover each of their beliefs. What I have done is I've actually taken their personal writings, like writings they would write to their wife or to their friend or to each other, and they would discuss what they would believe in their writings to each other. That's what I've decided to pull this from. Now, there's way. I can include all of the quotes. What I've tried to do is trim it down, but I have the books up here and their marks so you could see them in their context to know that I'm just not making these things up. And so what we're going to do is we're going to explore what they said so we can have a context of what they believed and we can have an understanding of where they're at. Because always I get yelled at, why are you picking on West Cotton Hort? Well, we just have to explore. They're the ones who gave us the new English versions. Shouldn't we know something about them and their agenda and their purpose to see if they were godly or not? I think we should. Westcott did not believe in creation. That's a good way to start. He said that Genesis 1-3 through should not be taken literally. We'll see that quote a little bit later. Well, that's pretty important. That's a foundational part of the Bible. If you can't believe the first four words of the Bible, you can't believe any of it. In the beginning, God. If you can't believe that, you're going to have a hard time believing the rest of the Bible. But he says, no, 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 that that shouldn't be taken literally. It's mythology. He accepted and embraced Darwin's book on origin of species wholeheartedly. He said, ah, that's my book. We'll see more quotes about those a little bit later. Westcott believed that, that, that the faith in God and rejection of creation and acceptance of the theory of evolution were compatible. What does that mean? He believed that you could believe in God and evolution and that they work together. Those are diametrically opposed sources. You cannot believe in both. Creation says we started off perfect and then we got worse and we need a savior. Evolution says we started off bad and we're getting better and better and better and better and better. That will pose a a train of thought a little bit later. He did not believe that the Bible was historically true. Well, that's pretty frightening. He thought that Moses and David were poetical characters who never existed as real people. Let's start getting into quotes. No one now, I suppose, holds that the first three uh, chapters of Genesis give a literal history. Well, I'm someone who does believe it. I could never understand how anyone reading them with open eyes to think they did. So it is probably elsewhere. Meaning, if you don't believe that the first three chapters of Genesis are true, the rest of the Bible is probably not literally true either. You see, it does pose a problem. He goes on to say, "...are we not going through a trial in regard to the use of popular language on literary subjects, like that (laughs) through which we went, not with sad losses in regard to the use of popular language on physical subjects, if you feel now it was to speak humanly necessary that the Lord should speak of the sun rising. Now we understand that's a colloquial term and that's, that's carried with the idea that how we see it. Does the sun really rise? No, the earth revolves around the sun. But that's how we understand it. That's how we see it. And God spoke using human instruments to speak in a language that we would understand. Right? Right? It is no less necessary that he would use the names of Moses and David's as his contemporaries used them. Meaning that just like the sun rising wasn't really true as figurative language, Moses was figurative as well. David was figurative as well. They're not really real. They're, they're just ways to communicate truth to us. Well, I would have a problem with that. He said, there was no critical-ish question at issue. Well, I believe it's history. That's pretty critical. He says, poetry is, I think, a thousand times more true than history. This is a private parenthesis for myself alone, meaning, hey, you know what, I'm just writing this down just because of my personal belief, but I personally believe that poetry is more accurate than history. Well... That shows what he would think about the Bible, because the Bible, don't we have a whole section called the historical books? Those aren't true. We, I, you know, they're more poetical. We could trust poetry, we just can't trust history. Well, that's Westcott's view on, on the Bible. Westcott said that David is not a chronological, but a spiritual person. He believed that the Bible was a collection of fairy tales that taught moral lessons. Well, it's a good thing. It's like Aesop's fables. I mean, you use it to teach kids to be good, to behave, but that's all it's good for. Do you trust this guy to write your Bible? No. He did not believe in the biblical account of miracles. I never read an account of a miracle, but I seem instinctively to feel its improbability and discover some want of evidence in the account of it. Meaning, I've never read a miracle in the Bible that I trust it. That's an issue. He did not believe in the literal, physical second coming of Jesus Christ. Let's see what he thinks about the second coming of Jesus Christ. As far as I could remember, I said very shortly what I hold to be in the Lord's coming in my little book, Historic Faith. I hold very strongly that the fall of Jerusalem, which was in 70 AD, was the coming which first fulfilled the Lord's words. And as there have been other comings, did you know according to him Jesus has come over and over and over and over again? I cannot doubt that he is coming to us now. Now, what Westcott believed is that the second coming of Jesus Christ was any event that had a spiritual implication or a spiritual impact on someone's life. So if you're reading your Bible and your Bible came alive that day, Jesus came to you. And that if you had a good time in church service and and man, it just opened up, Jesus came to you. So he didn't believe in the physical, literal coming of Jesus Christ. It was more of a spiritual coming that came every now and again to enlighten us and to help us. He did not believe that heaven was a literal place. <coughs> no doubt the language of the rubric is unguarded. But it saves us from the error of connecting the presence of Christ's glorified humanity with place. Heaven is a state and not a place. Yet, the unseen is the largest part of life. Heaven lies about us now in infancy alone. And by swift, silent pauses for thought, for recollection, for aspiration. We cannot only keep fresh the influence of that diviner atmosphere, but breathe it more habitually. He says, you know what heaven is? It's a warm breeze in the shade. Oh, it's heaven. Is that what heaven's like according to the Bible? He was also a follower of Newman, which we covered before. Now, he writes this, by the way, after Newman went back to the Roman Catholic Church. He writes this letter. Today, I've again taken up the tracks for the times and Dr. Newman. Don't tell me that he will do me harm. At least today, he will. Has done me good. And had you been here, I would have asked you to read his solemn words to me. He says, listen, Newman didn't do me any good or harm. He did me a lot of good. And again, this is after Newman went back and was made a cardinal inside of the Roman Catholic Church. Oh, that's a good guy. I'm so thankful for him. He helps me out a lot. My purchase today, still going in the same text, his purchase of Newman's book, my purchase has already amply repaid me. I think I shall choose a volume for one of my Christian companions. Meaning, I need to go tell everybody else about Newman. This is going to be good for them if they read it. It's going to help them a lot. Well, we already see what... Newman did to help people to get back to the Roman Catholic Church. Westcott is also a devout socialist and a post millennialist Now remember when I said that he believed in Darwin? And the idea of evolution is that we need to be that we started off bad and we're getting better and better and better. This is the idea of him being a socialist and a post-millenniist. A socialist in the idea of biblical socialism carries the idea that we are supposed to make the world a better place. And so if we can make everybody happier, if we can make everything equal, if we can take away the things that that divide people, and then we can make this a perfect place, once we make this world a perfect place, then Jesus would say, hey, it's just like my home. I want to go down and spend time with them. And that he believes that we make the uh, the heaven on earth, and as soon as we make it perfect down here, Jesus will come back. Well, let me tell you, the Bible tells us opposite. The Bible says we started off perfect, then we sinned and we got worse. And our only hope is a savior and evil seducers shall wax worse and worse. He was also a social reformer. Now, it's not part of biblical um, translations, but it tells us a little bit about his character. Plus, I like the quote, so here we go. His son, Arthur, describes his father, Westcott, like this. As a boy, my father took keen interest in the charist movement and the effect then produced upon his youthful imagination by the popular presentation of the sufferings of the masses never faded. His diary shows how he deserted his meals to be present at various stirring scenes, and particular to listen to the oratory of the great agitator, presumably Fergus O'Connor himself. He would often in his later years speak of these early impressions, which served in no small degree to keep alive his intense hatred of every form of injustice and oppression. He even later disapproved of his father's fishing excursions because his sympathies were so entirely on the side of the fish. One occasion, being then a little boy, he was carrying a fish basket when his father put a live fish into it. And later in life, he used to declare that he would still feel the struggles of the fish against his back. And so here's a guy here, he says, Listen, I sympathize with the struggles of the lower class. I sympathize with the social injustices that are done. And so it's just like that fish. I could feel their struggle. And if we could somehow make things better. And if, you know, if we could just make them have equal money. And if we could take care of this and get rid of this. Then what will happen is that we'll have life on earth. We understand that the idea of evolution and the idea of this type of thing, which brings today, which is big, the idea of social justice within churches. That churches believe that it is our responsibility to make the world a better place so that way we could bring heaven on earth and Jesus will come down. The Bible says that we're not supposed to be involved in those things. In fact, what we're supposed to do is tell people that they're sinner and need of a savior. Now we may try to do things to help bring the message, but we understand that there are some churches that don't preach the gospel at all, that all they're trying to do is make the world a better place. This is that same idea that if we can make the world a better place, then Jesus Christ will feel comfortable of coming back. And we can't help Jesus come back. That's his own business. No man knoweth the day, but my father, he says. Westcott was also a communist. Now, there's tons of quotes from his book, but it doesn't serve the purpose of this lesson, seeing that it's political rather than spiritual, but it shows his character and his understanding. I'll pause anyways, just because it's... (laughs) He hated the United States. When the Civil War was going on, he was hoping that the South would win, and if nothing else, that he would also, um, if nothing else, just let the South and the North beat each other up and just let them go. He hated the United States. He also, because he was taught Darwin, and if you're not familiar with this, I'll make some of the listeners happy right now Darwin was racist. If you don't believe me, read his book, Descent of Men, and see what he says about black folks. Yep. See what he says about women. And by the way, Darwinism and, and evolution is the basis of, of, of evolution. Of, sorry, of racism, of all this stuff. Remember what date? It was the scientific justification, that's what I meant. You remember the date that Darwin's book came out? 1859 what is about ready to happen in the United States the Civil War and it sold like hotcakes because Darwin gave quote-unquote scientific justification for slavery and racism and gave it a basis for it and it was very much horrible and Westcott to read his writings would not go past Facebook standards today The things that he said about black people and the things that he said about black people and the names that he used would not suffice and it should not be ever uttered by Christians but yet that was his belief. Now again that has nothing to do with translating the Bible but it gives us some insight of his character and his own beliefs. But the one thing we do want to cover is his Romanism. Remember that Newman had been bringing everyone back to the Roman Catholic Church. Let's see how it affected Westcott. Let's start with baptismal regeneration. If you're not familiar with that term, baptismal regeneration is a thought that you must be baptized in order to be saved. So let's see what he says. I do not say that baptism is absolutely necessary, though from the words of scripture I can see no exception. But I do think we have no right to exclaim against the idea of the commencement of a spiritual life conditionally from baptism any more than we can say to deny the commencement of a moral life from birth. Let's see what else he has to say. Oh, i sorry, different one. But he very much believes that that baptism is necessary for salvation. This is his belief and premise. Then the prayers for the dead. The idea for the prayers for the dead. If you're not familiar. Is the prayers for the dead believe. That when people die. They go to a place called purgatory. And you can help them get out of purgatory. If you pray really really hard for the dead. Well. The Bible says that absent from the body is present for the Lord. Once they are passed, there's nothing you could do for them. They've already, you have to make the decision to accept Christ before you die. You don't get the opportunity to receive Christ after you die. Here's what he said. I considered very carefully in conference with some other bishops of large knowledge and experience the attitude of our church with regard to the prayers for the dead. We agreed unanimously that we are as things are now forbidden to pray for the dead apart from the whole church in our public services no restrictions placed upon our private devotions meaning that we made a rule that unless we're all gathered together and we're all going to pray for the dead we're not going to do it however I could pray for the dead all that I want my own private devotions you could pray all you want but it's not going to do any good but then there's purgatory let's see what he thinks about purgatory the Bible says in John 14, 2, In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, Westcott wrote a commentary on the gospel record of John. And in his notes for the gospel record of John, chapter 14, and verse 2, this is what he says. The rendering of the Vulgate, Mensones, which were resting places, and especially the stations on a great road where travelers found ref- refreshment. This appears to be the true meaning of the Greek word here so that the contrasted notions of repose and progress are combined with this vision of future. So Westcott believed that the place that Jesus went to prepare for us was just a stopping point for a moment on the road in which you're going. So you're going from here to here. He just built you a little stopping place where you go and take a little break and get some refreshment and then go on to where you're eventually heading to. Well, I'm thankful that he's building me a mansion that i can to live forever. Amen. And then his Mariology, his worship of Mary, the mother of Jesus. He wrote a letter to his fiancée, Sarah Louise Wittard. This is what he said in a personal letter to her when, uh, before they were married. After leaving the monastery, we shaped our course to a little oratory, which we discovered on the summit of a neighboring hill. He goes on and describes the scene and then gets back to the little chapel. Fortunately, we found the door open. It is very small. With one kneeling place and behind it a screen was a pieta, the size of life. Now if you're not familiar with the term, a pieta is a virgin holding the dead Christ. So he goes inside of this chapel and here is a life-size statue of Mary holding the dead Christ. And as he's admiring it, this is what he said. Had I been alone, I could have knelt there for hours. Oh, what a beautiful scene of seeing Mary Holding this dead Christ in her arms and all oh, the tender compassion. Well, let's see what else he has to say. His author, Son Arthur, describes Westcott's uh, reaction to seeing the Sistine Madonna, which is a special painting painted by Michelangelo. This is what Westcott's reaction to the seeing this painting was. It is smaller than I expected and the coloring is less rich, but in expression it is perfect. The face of the Virgin is unspeakingly beautiful. I took, I looked till the lips seemed to tremble with intensity of feeling, of feeling simply, for it would be impossible to say whether it be awe of joy or hope, humanity shrinking before the divine, or the swelling of its conscious possession. It is enough that there is a deep, intensely deep emotion, such as the mother of the Lord may have had. He loved to look at pictures of Mary and adore them. The intensity of Westcott's admiration for Mary was reflected in the name change for his fiance. So as he's getting ready to get married, he has a request for his fiance to be. His son, Arthur, describes this. My mother, whose name was Sarah Louisa Wittard, was the eldest of three sisters. She afterwards, at the time of her confirmation at my father's request, took the name of Mary in addition. He loved Mary so much that he asked his wife to put Mary in her name so that way he could always think about Mary and how wonderful she is. Well, let's go to his companion, Fenton John Anthony Hort. Let's see what Mr. Hort had to believe. Now the prejudice with both of these men against the Textus Receptus was tremendous. Here's what they said. I had no idea till the last few weeks of the importance of text. Having read so little Greek testament and dragged on with the villainous Textus Receptus. Think of the vile Textus Receptus leaning entirely on the late manuscripts. It is a blessing that there is such early ones. So they (laughs) believed that the Texas Receptus, which is the basis of our authorized version, was villainous. They called it vile. Now let me pause here. Whenever we go through something like this, talking about the authorized version, I'm always going to get hate mail. And the reason why I get hate mail is because they hate The Bible. They have no problems using any other version, but just because I say we believe in the authorized version, they will come out of the woodwork and yell and fuss and scream that we dare use a Bible. Now, may I use a thing of logic? If they believe all the Bibles the same, what do they care if we use the authorized version? But yet they always go out of their way. They don't care about any other version. But if you stick up for the authorized version, they will come out and with violent hatred. Why do we stick up with this manuscript? It is amazing what happens when that... And they're the same way. Could it be that there's a spiritual war... And could it be that there is such a thing as a manuscript that God protected and if you're not on God's side, you're automatically going to hate the things that God loves? Now, they believe that Vaticanus and Alexandrius was better simply because they were older. And we covered that idea that the theory of the oldest was best. They bought into that. The oldest was best. That's what Hort was saying before. I'm so thankful there's older manuscripts so we don't even have to bother with that villainous and vile Texas Receptist. Well, that's a big deal. He goes on and says, For we, for ourselves, we dare not introduce considerations which could not be reasonably applied to other ancient texts, supposing them to have documentary attestation of equal amount, verity, and iniquity. In the New Testament, as almost all prose writings which have been much copied, corruptions by interpolation are many times more numerous than corruptions of omission. What do they mean by this? It was the position of Hort that the New Testament was just another example of prose or poetic writing, and that it had been corrupted through transmission through the years, meaning he didn't believe the Bible was the word of God. He believed the Bible had many mistakes and things that were missing, things that were added to it. You couldn't trust it. That's a big deal. He said, I'm inclined to think there is no state as Eden. I mean, the popular notion, meaning he didn't believe in the Garden of Eden, ever existed, and that Adam's fall in no degree differed from the fall of each of his descendants as Coolridge justly arguifies. So, think about this. He found the writings of Samuel Coolridge will cover him in just a bit. He is going to be a big influence on both Westcott and Hort. So, I'm not going to tell you who he is now. You know, you may say, well, is he a theologian? Is he a good Bible teacher? Who is this Samuel Coolridge? Hold on here, unless you went to college and you already know, then just, you know. Samuel Coolridge was more to be trusted with the origins of man more than the book of Genesis. Meaning that he said, I trust the word of Samuel uh, Coolridge and his writings more than I trust the Bible. That's a big deal. I further agree with them, the authors of essays and reviews, and condemning many leading specific doctrines of the popular theology. Evangelicals seem to be perverted rather than untrue. There are, I fear, still still more serious differences between us on the subject of authority and especially the authority of the Bible. He says, listen, we don't believe in the authority of the Bible. You can't convince me that the Bible has authority. He says, because they believe the Bible has authority, because people want to submit to the Bible, I don't see them so much as untrue. I see them as perverted. So if you believe the Bible, and you base your faith off the Bible, and you believe that the Bible is your authority, Hort says you're not so much untrue, you're just perverted in your thinking. So guess what? We're all perverted thinking according to Hort. That's a big deal. We do believe the Bible is our authority. He goes on and says, As I was writing the last words, a note came from Westcott. He too mentions having fears, which he now pronounces groundless, on the strength of our last conversation, in which he discovered I did recognize providence and biblical writing. Now notice this. Westcott wrote a note and said, wait a second, you mean to tell me all this time you believe God wrote the Bible? Wait, what are you thinking? And so they had a discussion. Did God really write the Bible? And, and uh, Westcott was really upset. You believe that God wrote the Bible? What you... So they talked about it. Notice this is their conclusion. More strongly, I recognize it, but I'm not prepared to say that it necessarily involves absolute infallibility. So, I await judgment. Here's the conclusion. Basically, he said God may have had something to do with writing the Bible. Or maybe he didn't. But one thing he knew for sure is that the Bible was not infallible. Meaning that the Bible has mistakes, has errors. God, yeah, maybe wrote it, maybe didn't. But, you know, you can't really trust it. That's a big deal. Darwin and evolution. Let's see what Hort says about Darwin. Have you read Darwin? Darwin. How should I like to talk to you about it in spite of difficulties? I'm inclined to think of it in or unanswerable. In any case, it is a treat to read such a book. A different letter, he writes, but the book which has most engaged me is Darwin. Whatsoever may be thought of it, it is a book that one is proud to be contemporary with. My feeling is strong that the theory is unanswerable. If so, it opens up a new period. He loved to talk about Darwin. He wrote many letters talking about, man, have you read Darwin? This is great. If you haven't, you need to read Darwin. This is, it will change your life. Now, Hort was a follower of the teachings of Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who we had brought up before and we're going to bring up again. Maybe we should cover a little bit about who this guy is. Samuel, now who is this guy that Hort would trust his word over the Bible? Who, by the way, this guy is going to talk Hort out of his beliefs on many things. Who is this guy? Well, his son said this about his father and his admiration of Coleridge. In undergraduate days, if not before, he, his father Hort, had come under the spell of Coleridge. Coolridge was a high school dropout. He would buy opium and smoke it and pass out on the floor. When he'd wake up and still half conscious, he would start to write until he would pass out again. That was his writings. And in colleges, you have to study the writings, and then you would have to read to where he finally dropped out and passed to the floor and have to finish the poem in order to pass the class. Would you trust some opium addict's word over the Bible? Well, that's a problem. One of Coleridge's famous works was Aids to Reflection. Its chief aim of this book was to harmonize formal Christianity with Coleridge's. Uh, um, idea of transcendental philosophy. He also did much to uh, introduce Immanuel Kant, a German philosopher, and other German philosophers to the English reader. So by the way, does transcendental uh, philosophy match biblical theology? Not at all. But Coleridge said, hey, you know what? Let's see if we can jam this together. I guess it only works if you're on opium, but He tried to put it together and Hort said, man, this is great. I'd believe this rather than Genesis any day of the week. Coleridge also had an influence on both Westcott and Hort, which would bring to Greek philosophy. Greek philosophy was a big deal to Hort. Notice what he said. You seem to make... Greek philosophy worthless for those who have received Christian revelation. Meaning that, hey, you mean that you seem, the way that you preach makes it seem like no one should follow Greek philosophy. If you believe the Bible, you can't believe in Greek philosophy. Well, I believe you can do the same. Guess who else believed the same? Origen. Guys remember those lectures? He goes on to say, to me, though in a hazy way, it seems full of precious truth. Meaning Greek philosophy is full of precious truth of which I find nothing and should be very much astonished and perplexed to find anything in Revelation. What Revelation is he speaking of? The Bible. He says he finds more precious truth in Greek philosophy than than he ever does in the Bible and he goes on he said I'd be actually surprised and perplexed puzzled to find truth in the Bible do you trust this guy right in your Bible now this is his own words I'm not making this is you can look it up for yourself well let's see what he said about the devil The discussion which immediately precedes these four lines naturally leads to another enigma most intimately connected with that of everlasting penalties, namely that of the personality of the devil. It was Coolridge, thank you Coolridge, who who some three years ago first raised any doubts in my mind of the subjects. So guess what? I used to believe in the devil, but it was Coolridge who talked me out of my belief of the devil. Thank you. Doubts which have never yet at all been set at rest one way or the other. You yourself are very cautious in your language. Now if there be a devil... He cannot merely be a corrupted and marred image of God. He must be wholly evil. His name is evil. His very energy and act evil. Would it not be a violation of divine attributes for the word to be actively the support of such a nature as that? Meaning, isn't the Bible against? God could have never created devil. We can never have something purely evil that the Bible would speak about. It just it doesn't work in my mind. Let's see what he thought about hell. I think Maurice's letter to me sufficiently showed that we have no sure respecting the duration of future punishment, and that the word eternal has a far higher meaning than that merely of a material one of excessively long duration. Extinction always grates against my mind as something that's impossible. He says, you know, eternal in the Bible really doesn't mean eternal. It's, It's not really a time, it's a concept. He says, certainly, let me make sure, certainly in my case, it proceeds from no personal dread. When I have been living most godlessly, I have never been able to frighten myself with visions of a distant future, even why I help the doctrine. He said, you know, there was a time that I lived like a heathen and I believed in hell and I could never really scare myself that there was such a thing as hell. And now that I don't believe in hell, guess what? It really doesn't scare me at all. Well, I think he believes in hell today. Let's see what he said about purgatory. I agree with you in thinking that Maurice verbally repudiates purgatory, but I am fully and unwaveringly agree with him in three cardinal points of controversy. Meaning that Maurice believed in purgatory, but, or didn't believe in purgatory, but Hort did. But here's three things he could agree with. That eternity is independent of duration. Once again, that eternity is not a time frame. It's more of a concept. And that the power of repentance is not limited to this life, meaning that he believed that when you go to the other side, purgatory, that you could repent and still get saved. You could still accept Jesus after you die. And then, that it is not revealed whether or not all will ultimately repent. He goes on to say, the modern denial of the second, meaning the idea that um, (coughs) people can repent after they die. He said the modern denial of that, I suppose, has more to do with the despiritualization of theology than almost anything that could be named, meaning that I can't understand why people would deny that people could get saved after they die. I mean, everyone should believe that. He goes on and says, The idea of purgation, of cleansing as by fire, seems to me inseparable from what the Bible teaches of us of the divine chastisements. And though little is directly said respecting the future state, it seems to me incredible that the divine chastisements should in this respect change their character when this visible life has ended. Let's see what he said about the atonement. What is atonement? This is Jesus' payment of our sins upon the cross of Calvary. Let's see what he has to say about this. The fact is, I do not see how God's justice can be satisfied without every man's suffering. In his own person, the full penalty of sin. He says, you know what? I think everyone has to pay their own price. Jesus wasn't enough. You know, we all have to pay our own price. And once it's burned out, we're all good. Certainly nothing could be more unscriptural than the modern limiting of Christ bearing our sins and suffering to his death. But indeed, one that is one aspect of an almost universal heresy. He said, guess what? If you believe that Jesus Christ, atonement on the cross of Calvary, and you believe that Jesus had to die on the cross for salvation of sins, that's a universal heresy. You believe in heresy. Isn't that how we're all saved? By believing in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross of Calvary? The payment of our sins? He says that's heresy. That's not true. He says, I confess to have no repugnance to the primitive doctrine of the ransom paid to Satan though I am neither prepared to give full assent to it. But I could see no other possible form in which a doctrine of ransom is at all tenable. Anything is better than the notion of a ransom being paid to the Father. He said if Jesus did die for sins, He died to pay, for, pay Satan. He didn't die to pay the Father. But it was God's fault of justice who was violated. He was God that we owe a debt to. For the wages of sin is death, but Jesus Christ, he died for. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But he says, you know what, I'd rather believe that Jesus died to pay a ransom to Satan than he did died to pay a ransom to God, to pay for our debt. Well, who do we owe a debt to, to Satan or to God? That's a big deal. Let's see what he said about baptismal regeneration. At the same time, in language stating that we maintain baptismal regeneration it, as the most important of doctrines, the pure Romanish view, Roman Catholic, seems to me nearer and more likely to lead to the truth than the evangelicals. He said, I'd rather believe the Roman idea of baptizing babies than anything the evangelicals would believe. Baptism assures us that we are the children of God. Members of Christ and his body. And the heirs of the heavenly kingdom. That's what he thinks baptism does. And then there's ghost hunting. I get yelled at for this. But let's just read what the quote says and just leave it there. How about that? Westcott, Gordon, C.B. Scott, Benson, and Bradshaw, Lard, etc., and I have started a society for the investigation of ghosts and all supernatural appearances and effects, being all disposed to believe that such things really exist and ought to be discriminated from hoaxes and mere subjective delusions. End quote. I'll let you draw your own conclusions, but that's what he said. We shall happily to obtain any good accounts well authenticated with names. Westcott is drawing up a schedule of questions. Cope calls us the cock and bull club. Our own temporary name is the ghostly guild. Nice. So here's a summary of the beliefs of Westcott and Hort. According to their own quotes. Here's what they believe. They believe in Darwin and reject creation. They don't believe the biblical had uh, the Bible had historical people. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in heaven was a real place. They didn't believe hell was a real place. They, de- they denied the second coming of Jesus Christ. They denied the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. They didn't believe the devil was real. They believed that baptism saved you. They preferred the religion of Rome. They put more trust in Coolidge than the Bible They got more from Greek philosophy than the Bible. They denied inspiration. They denied biblical infallibility. They denied biblical preservation. They hated the preserved text. They believed those who did believe the Bible were perverted. Now, if they believed what they said they believed, according to the Bible, they are not saved. Now, here's a question. Can lost men who deny the Bible be trusted to translate the Bible correctly from their own Greek text they produced, which I did not include in this story, I may include later on, but they tried to put their own Greek text, not the text they were hired to put to use. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, let's go back to the Bible and let's finish up with the Bible. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. And definitely we understand that. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, proud, uh, sorry, uh, self, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, un holy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. Man, matches the list pretty good, doesn't it? Traitors. I'm sorry. Good. Sorry. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Now in the first part of Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, it's talking about in the last days perilous times should come. Now if you read that list, you have to understand that all of history has always been that way. The one thing that is different is verse 5. Having a form of godliness. These are people who claim to be Christians In these last days that are going to behave like this. These are going to be people that say they're followers of God that act like this. And they're going to deny the power of God. They have a form of godliness. But they deny the power of God. And the Bible instructs us from such turn away. Notice as it goes on. Verse uh, 6. For of this sort, so these people here, which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with their diverse lust. Meaning they're going to seduce people and they're going to draw them. Notice this conclusion in verse number seven. Ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Now were these guys fairly smart. Yes. where they learned? Yes. Did they learn more and more? Yes. But did they ever come to the knowledge of truth? They did. They missed the truth. They had the truth in their fingers. They played with it. And they did not come to the knowledge of truth. That's dangerous things. Now, some people again will yell at me. Why are you picking on on Westcott and Hort? Well, because the Bible told me so. Notice with me in verse number eight. Now, as Janus and Jamborees withstood Moses, who are these guys? Janus and Jamborees that the Bible calls out by names. These are the Pharaoh's sorcerers that tried to go toe-to-toe with Moses. Remember that when Moses turned in uh, the the staff into the snake, they threw their snakes down. They tried to uh, reproduce this. God calls them out by name. And by the time, by the way, that is a biblical thing. Remember that when Peter went to go visit Paul, and that Peter messed up, that Paul said, I withstood him to the face before them all, because he was to be blamed. And Paul wrote it in a letter and sent it around. to let people know. There are times that we are supposed to call out names and say they are wrong, they're wicked, and they're evil. And they are. As Janice and Jamborese withstood Moses, <clears throat> so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. And that's what we're trying to do, is say this is wrong, it's wicked and evil. They did not believe the truth, they were false, and we cannot trust them. But the Bible does tell us instructions... It tells us that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And once again, I am not telling people who believe in a different version or use a different version that they're evil. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that they were deceived. Someone lied to them. And the person that lied to them was probably nice and well-meaning and probably meant a lot. In fact, a lot of those new evangelical preachers are nicer than than some of the Baptist preachers. (laughs) But they were deceived. Why are they deceiving people? Because someone deceived them. And their professor taught them that. And who taught them that? Their professor taught them that. And their professor. And it goes on until you get to this idea of Westcott and Hort. They're deceiving and being currently present tense deceived. They don't understand that this is a big deal. The Bible tells us, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Paul is telling Timothy, listen, you don't listen to them, you continue in the things that I taught you. He says, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures. He says, Timothy, from a little child, your mother and grandmother taught you the bible you stick with that bible you don't change bibles you stick with that no that from a child that was known the holy scriptures which were able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus and all scripture is given by inspiration of god and is profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction for instruction is righteousness that the man of God may be perfect thoroughly furnished unto all good works you understand God has given us his word and we can trust it and he's given so many promises and so many proofs and we understand that it is a lie of the devil that is trying to deceive and trying to take away and trying to get you so you don't believe your Bible it is a spiritual war going on and we have to make a decision there are no spectators you have to make a decision to stick with the old book or to allow corruptions to come in. You say, well, I don't believe it. That's fine. You don't have to. All my job is to give you information and you make the own, your own decision based off the information given to you. But there are plenty of resources and you could see it for yourself and research it, and make a decision. And that's all we're trying to encourage you to do, is to make a decision. But when you decide, and you find out that this is the God's word, obey it, follow it, love it. It is God's word.